You're listening to Sound and Process, Episode 9. I'm Dan Dirks. Thank you so much for joining me. Sound and Process is an exploration of the artists of lines. To join the conversation, visit LLLLLLLL, that's 8Ls.co. My guest for this episode is Carl Fosick, an improviser who spent the last five years crafting an incredible archive of live modular performances and studio albums. As a deeply devoted fan of experimental and electronic music, and by dedicating himself to the mastery of his tools as a single instrument, Carl has developed a compositional agility which helps him explore new directions of form. His latest release, Two Pieces for a Contemporary Connection, is a stunning hybrid of live improvisations and rehearsal recordings. Beyond his work as a solo synthesist, Fosick also plays with Devin Hansen and Roger Telia Craig, a partnership which bore the very well-received No Sound Without a Misunderstanding, and most recently, No Image in particular. I am so excited to share this episode with you. Through our conversation, Carl covers everything from his approaches to long-form performances, building patches that are mutable yet structured, learning a modular system as an instrument, improvising with others, and now he navigates uncanny sounds. Let's get to it. This is Sound and Process with Carl Fosick. There's a sincere overlap between your live work and your studio work and your development as a performer. The studio practice goes much farther back. So I've been working with computers and sound recording devices uh, for a really long time. Probably my earliest memory of working with sound is uh, like a boom box my dad gave me when I was a kid. Uh, you, you know, with two tape decks so you can do really primitive overdubs or whatever. So I remember how, like that aspect has always been in my life. And when I was a teenager, I got really into computer music. Like I remember having a turntable and not so much DJing, but, you know, sampling, I guess, rudimentarily and whatever free plugins were around at the time, <laughs> uh, like Soundhack or whatever. But none of that music ever was released or was really public. And my life like, uh, you know, veered off. I had like a, a different professional track and I went to school for something else and I didn't do it for several years or I only did it very briefly in my spare time. Yeah. And then around 2014, probably a couple years before that, I was like, I, this is, I, I missed doing it. And I, I realized that it was what I really wanted. I needed to have it in my life, whether or not it was going to be a career or not. It needed to be public and I needed so that I could focus on it properly. Mm. And it was around that time that I bought uh, things that weren't a laptop. Uh, I started with effects pedals and then kind of quickly realized I didn't enjoy the kind of inputs for effects pedals. Like I am a useless instrumentalist, so I didn't, I felt a little phony, like poorly playing, playing a, a guitar. I remember being around <laughs> on that time I was on the 12K at a forum. And so there was kind of this received uh, way of playing those kind of things and a lot of people had like lap harps and I don't know there's like these kind of like little cheap acoustic instruments that make they make interesting input it's not a slight on that music but it makes interesting input into like a chain of effects sure. but I just wasn't it just didn't speak to me or I felt a little funny playing these instruments through the effects and that was so that was around the same time that Rack was really starting like I think 2011 or 2010 was when Tony at Make Noise first had uh, like a little system you could buy, maybe you could get into it without having to order the dope for systems or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I should add that I also felt like a fraud playing keys. So like all those little synths you can buy that, that had keyboards, like I, it didn't speak to me. Uh, I, I'd never been trained 
musically to play that and so I felt awkward about like what chords I should be playing or I didn't know I had no idea where and it's all fine you make a sound and it doesn't have to be that but I, I still didn't it didn't like feel like an instrument I was playing and at that point having just worked with computer audio for so long I really wanted to feel like I was playing an instrument but not one that was traditional or not one that I had missed the boat on learning or something you know so so yeah that's a long way of saying I got I bought a synthesizer around that time uh and then that was roughly yeah I didn't kind of learn how to play it in a year or so and then was like okay I have to do shows because that's really I wanted to push myself to make it a public activity yeah and because I I wanted it to be an instrument and not necessarily just an item in the studio for recording so it was like people who play instruments play shows so I need to get out there (laughs) yeah so that's where it started Um, I'm from Vancouver so it was the easiest to get a show there I think that was like a really that first show on my website that's listed there is uh, yeah it was like a really small show and a really small artist run gallery and I, yeah and I think I recorded the the first tape relative positions yeah when I got back from that trip uh, with the same exact like synthesizer and uh, some of the same techniques I was using to play which was largely like running the synth through a really long delay kind of like old Steve Reich style or Terry Riley style or whatever and letting that like you know, determine rhythms and fades and stuff like that. And that's where it's all started. Something that I love about the way that you talked about relative positions on the um, Narakamori podcast, you brought this this up that the album was kind of just takes of the most that you could retain a, a thread or a through line. Yeah. I love that idea of being able to be honest with yourself and to know when that drop-off occurs. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I mean, I, I was not that experienced at playing live at that point. So I didn't have that much experience in sustaining the thing for uh, a 20, half an hour, minute period of time or something. Yeah. And you're playing into this long loop. So if you make a mistake, the mistake comes back at you. So it was just like wanting to record something good with the system, but not wanting to mess it up. And so if it goes really well and you're not sure what to do next, then it's only 18 seconds long, then yeah, that, that's what the piece is. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, there's so many more recordings from those sessions and I, I just pulled the ones that like work the best and some of them were, it was like yeah 18 seconds works great uh which is ironic because like presently I'm really getting into long form things and things that happen over like 40 minutes or something yeah which is yeah almost the exact opposite but there's room for both right right <laughs> I, I also I'm a huge uh, hip hop fan, and I love. I used to listen to like beat tapes where they're just like little demos of ideas of of like rhythms or loops or something for like you know a minute. And there's you buy an album, and it's like forty of these things. So I, I remember at the time being like, thinking, uh, yeah, let's make a synthesizer version of that. Where it's just like, yeah, here's here's twenty seconds of an idea, and that's all you need. <laughs> Thank you. 
going into the live shows, some of the stuff that you're doing on pattern variation um, with creating longer durational exercises and, and, and just messing with the possibilities of one source using a, a single patch. What influenced that exploration? One of the aspects of the synthesizer that I really like is that you can do, yeah, you can do one configuration or one patch or program or whatever you want to call it, and it can generate like a, a wide variety of material. So I mean, I'm really drawn to the idea of doing that over the course of a performance. And um, I don't think the pattern variations tape came from a performance patch, but it was definitely, I, I didn't change any of the gear or anything for the tape. It was just a nice patch I was working on. and it seemed to generate a lot of material. Um, but I like that as an aesthetic, uh, that idea that essentially the machine generates an infinite amount of, of sound and you really just like dip into it. So like each piece on that tape is dipping into, yeah, the one patch or like someone performing the one patch. I mean, it's funny because I think it comes from the same impulse uh, as playing live. It just turned out differently. There, there really is a sense of, a, of an infinity behind everything, I think, with the, with the synthesizer uh, and with the performances, which is why I like to document everything because it's all those performances and they're never going to turn out the same way. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's all like dipping into one large practice. practice of going back and listening to what you had recorded live and and having that influence what you do in the studio was that present from the beginning oh yeah absolutely that was there from the beginning um because i would prepare something for a show or what have you and then uh like pack up the patch and basically just play with that uh, continually in the studio after doing a performance and that's how most of the releases come about I, it just feels like so many people would do the reverse uh, because there's a safety net built in. Yeah, I guess that's what's really common, right? You design a you design a song or something, and then you play back bits of it in a slightly different way or something as a performance. But playing it as an instrument is the most important for me. So it doesn't it doesn't make sense to to compose something and then present that because that's not how I've been thinking about my practice. I mean, some of the releases involve multi-tracking and stuff as, as I've been going along. Like, I've been experimenting with that. And so, right. largely, it's really just figuring out a way to play with a, a single instrument and maybe a few other accentuations. And then, um, yeah, recording versions of that. And then using little studio bits to enhance those. But it's linked. It's linked as one practice. And playing the synth comes first. That's the seed of the whole practice. And I don't think that's ever going to change. Re recently, I'm thinking more about having like specific compositional strategies or what have you, instead of just coming from a place of improvising. Um, but even if I veer off in that direction, the, the improvising is always going to have a place. And I think as long as I keep playing out, I'm going to be able to keep generating uh, recorded material from that as well. But the synth changes all the time and what I do with it changes. So the music keeps evolving. Thank you. 
What is the measurable difference for you, either emotionally or just in that performative mindset of building a patch with an audience, having it be born in front of people first, rather than, you know, sitting at home and being like, cool, I'm going to spend, you know, an hour improvising and I'll just record the hour and then find a song out of that. There is an overall sense of, um, there's two things. One is there's an element of risk so that when you're simply recording at home you, and it goes bad, you can stop and start over. And you can't really do that on stage. So it really it, it pushes me to focus in a way and listen in a way because you're listening so much more closely because you're afraid of making a mistake or ruining the overall uh, flow of a piece. Um, I guess that's a good way to put it is that the second thing is it forces me to think of a, yeah, like an overall arc. Even if I am improvising, I want to develop a patch for performance that is capable of moving to at least two or three different places. You, you have to think of, uh, you're managing someone's experience over 20 to 30 minutes. And because of the way the synthesizer works, like it does do things on its own and you're, you're more like a conductor sometimes than a, a strictly an instrumentalist. So sometimes you set up little things that go on their own. And so you, the experience of playing it is like managing, um, a larger arc. So yeah, it forces me a to listen closely so that I don't make mistakes and B to have more of a sense of yeah, the world arc in real time. When you're recording and editing afterwards, you can really just, yeah, you can mold that arc out of sound. But for some reason, I find that's much harder. I find, I find if I just recorded a bunch of sound and then the task is to arrange it on a computer, I find it so much more overwhelming in terms of the, the number of decisions that are valid. Right. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, if you've performed something, it's, that's what it is. And it forces you to yeah, think and... It forces you to choose. I think that's a big thing too, is that, yeah, in the moment you have to choose something and that what you've chosen is the piece. It's, in a sense, it's right, but it, it forces you to have a kind of decisiveness. So I can be quite indecisive as a person. And so <laughs> um, just constructing music on a timeline is just a... a anxiety wrought experience of indecision and possibilities uh, yeah i would never finish any music let's put it that way <laughs> and when i do work with multi-tracking now it's like i have to limit myself to like three tracks or it's like okay there's one track where this happens and then there's two tracks where there's effects or something and maybe if something weird happens i'll edit it out but i i can't just i can't just because uh, i have friends who work by recording hours and hours and hours of sample material and then sifting through it all. And just like, I would never be able to finish anything like that. Thinking back to those early shows, kind of just that um, 2014 and 2015 area, as you're building these pieces uh, in front of an audience and, and, and 
really rooting in that practice. What were some of the moments of clarity or uh, like some of those very positive experiences? Most of the positive experiences came from meeting people and having people respond well. Mm -hmm. And the biggest, the biggest payoff I think has been other musicians asking me to play with them. Um, that's like hugely complimentary. If you think this all started with me not feeling like I could play an instrument, uh, having someone ask you to play with them uh, is a huge honor. Um, and I play now, I play with two separate groups of improvisers, uh, and that, that's just incredible. Yeah. There, there were some improvisers who play um, acoustic instruments, like they're incredible masters of what they do, and when they asked me to play with them, that was a, like a huge, that was a huge honor. So I think those, those have been the biggest payoffs. And yeah, every time a show goes well too. Uh, <laughs> I definitely have some recordings of shows that are not as good, that are not on the internet, but uh, that, but that's normal too. I mean, I learned when I started playing more, I learned some shows are better than others and that's okay. Uh, and coming to terms with that is really like freeing as well. some of the qualitative things when you say like you had a group of bad shows in those early years what constitutes a bad show outside of just like oh the wrong note uh happened here <laughs> like what were those harder lessons um and how do you kind of approach listening to yourself as an audience member as well as a performer, because I, I feel like that improvisational performance mindset, you have to be paying attention to both. Yeah, it's true. Although sometimes I zone out and I don't realize how long a thing has gone on for. <laughs> or, uh, sometimes I, sometimes I have to. I'm really constant. I'm not aware of what I'm concentrating on, um, and I think that's probably what is going the best. <laughs> uh, I think that when I'm the most conscious of something going wrong is when I don't think I know what to do next and there's still a lot of time to fill. Uh, a bad show can be a lot of things because sometimes it's not, it's, sometimes it's just the, something goes wrong in the venue or the, the audience is just off or something. Um, and sometimes it does just come down to, oh, I made a bad note. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, like working... Um, at the early, early years, a lot of a lot of it was learning how to not make what I myself would consider a mistake, whether or not the audience would recognize that. Uh, and that, that's just a personal, that's just, that's just an aspect of learning how to play the instrument, I think, uh, or an aspect of learning how to express what I am interested in. Um, the kind of worst shows I've played, I think, is is where I've felt rushed. And then maybe you run through you run through some of the possibilities you knew existed, and you don't know what else is there, and you feel like you should stop, but you've only been playing for ten minutes. Hmm. The synthesizer is interesting because 
I, I would say it's not purely an improvisational instrument. There's always an aspect of composition because you have to make a decision in advance about how it's configured. Um, and there's a, a, an aspect with a patch where it's always already has some bit of composition in it because you've made a decision. Um, it's not like a, a it's not like a string instrument where it's not making a sound until it's activated physically. It it can be making a sound already. Right. So the aspect of improvising is um, how you alter. I, I don't know. It's it's almost like live composition in a way or something. It's it's. <laughs> um, but but this is it's very different improvising than the experience of uh, improvising with other instruments. I think. Um, and the types of gestures you're capable of are very, you can have very slow log gestures, right? And you can have multiple sounds overlapping in a way that you can't really with, if you're playing a saxophone or something like you, with the saxophone, you can make many tones at once, but, uh, you know, you can have sub patches in the synth and then uh, you can slowly bring one in in a really long gesture and it's quite a complex sound or something. Mm. So you're doing all these things at once. You're, you're like reconfiguring what the composition is or like altering a composition that you've started with a patch you're you're doing a kind of arrangement in real time because you could have multiple aspects that fit in and out uh, like quite complex aspects um yeah and you're responding to all that so you're listening to it so you're doing all those things at once how do you judge listenability well, i have no idea hey <laughs> I, I, I mean, the ultimate, it, the horizon is my own taste. That's, it's just, I have to like it. And that's why it. Yeah. I mean, when you're playing with other people, it's then there's always some, someone else is giving, firing off some sound that you, you can respond to. And that's a little bit different because it's not purely your taste. But yeah. When I'm playing a solo improvised set, it's like, if I veer into something I think sounds bad, I just have to veer away from it. <laughs> A lot of a lot of times it feels like I'm continually tuning the instrument uh, in real time. It feels like you know you're just trying to get every all the parameters into that zone where everything locks in perfectly. But then that um, can only go on for so long, and so then you have to like tune it out of that into some other state. In that sense, it's quite a lot. It's quite similar to how like free improvisers operate, where. They kind of, if they, if they, um, you know, there's like multiple voices all doing things at once and they don't always necessarily communicate, uh, or they don't always necessarily, um, what's the way we're putting it? They clash often. Uh, and sometimes in the middle of improvisation, everyone finds each other. Uh, and then for a while it's, everything fits and then someone just does something else and it doesn't fit anymore. And it's a continual push between fitting and falling apart. Um, so since the synthesizer contains all these complex voices, it's playing it solo, improvising with it is a similar process all by yourself. You're, these different aspects of the patch come together and fall apart, come together and fall apart. And, um, I try not to let it fall apart too much, I guess. <laughs> is there an element then of having to nudge it toward falling apart just so you can re-engage those faculties? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, sometimes you tune everything to a perfect place and you're know, like, uh, that's gone for, it can't go on for the rest of the performance. So then you just go, you know, what happens if this is different and then it veers off or something. Yeah. It's always um, really different depending on what the patch is too, so. Yeah. 
some patches are more wide open for that kind of improvising. Right. A lot of times I have some kind of weird feedback thing to the clock so that you can nudge it and the timing just goes bananas or something. the end of 2015 uh, you established this trio so the trio is a, a trio i have with um, devin henson and roger tellier craig who are uh, a couple of local musicians and um the scene here is small enough that you kind of once you start playing out you get to know everyone and um we just became friends and we had similar tastes in music and interests and uh i was doing a lot at the time i was doing a lot of yeah, solo improvising. And um, those guys weren't so much. They were doing a lot of uh, the opposite of presenting their music as some kind of playback. Mm. I mean, Roger has done that kind of stuff before as well. He's uh, he's uh, like a veteran of the scene and has played in all kinds of different bands and configurations and musics and stuff. So he's done some like free improvised noise and stuff before. So it wasn't like totally new to him, but at the time he was doing this more of this kind of like pop electronic thing. And uh, Dev is a lot younger. He, he's a student at the at Concordia here, and there's a program for electroacoustic music. So he was really involved in the world of, of like strictly playing back your compositions. At least at the time, he's he's really totally diversified now, and he has this whole other thing of playing dance music, and it's a whole other world. But uh, but yeah, so we started as friends, and then we just uh, got together to play, and uh, it really worked. <laughs> It was it was fun. We, yeah, it was fun. And basically, what happened is we got together to play. I think we just booked a show, and then, so that forced us to start playing. Um, so how we operate is we just uh, record our rehearsals and then take the best bits of that, and it ends up being a, a release. And the, the first release we did was received really well, like beyond what we ever expected. Well, you guys are kind of remarkably of the same mind. Well, my experience improvising with other people who aren't those guys is no one talks about the music at all. You, um, you just suddenly you're playing. Uh, and we, I mean, um, Roger and Dev and me all have a, a love of music. And so we're constantly talking about music. But we all have a, yeah, we all have a interest in, uh, like, old electroacoustic music, uh, music from the 70s. So I think that informs a lot of what we're doing, our, our knowledge of each other's tastes. So I think we know where, yeah, we, we kind of know where the uh, crossover and the Venn diagram is. Uh, mm. And I think we all know where we can add a little bit of our own as well. I, I think it just comes from how well we know each other. Mm. Uh, the, the biggest challenge is uh, how to work with the computers in that situation. I think the least successful music we've done as a trio, which hasn't been released, has been there's been too much playback of material from from a laptop. So I play the synth in the trio, and Roger also has a, a Eurorack synth, and he has a laptop that he mostly uses for just like live effects. It's, instead of having a bunch of pedals, it just all runs through the laptop. Uh, but but Devin only has a laptop, and so when we started, it was a lot of uh, like sample playback through effects. Um, 
but he ended up building this whole improvising system in Reactor uh, so that he wouldn't have to rely so much on the playback of, of samples. Mm. So that's the biggest challenge with improvising with like a heap of electronics is navigating the computer. But beyond that, it's, it's all just, we, we know each other, we know each other's tastes, and uh, I think we're all good listeners. And, uh, but we do talk about the dynamics. I think there's a conscious effort of, on all of us to make sure that the music is dynamic. Any electronic instrument can make so much sound on its own that I think we all have to, the biggest challenge for all of us is restraint. With three people throwing sound up. And so sometimes we'll listen back to the stuff and be like, oh, we're all, we're all just uh, playing too much. So it's all, I think for all of us, it's a constant exercise in subtracting. Uh, um, and we're all used to playing solo music where we're the only person responsible for all the voices. And so now we're not. So it's, um, yeah, an exercise in subtracting from what we normally do and an exercise in like what is sufficient to throw up there. <laughs> And figuring out when, yeah, when the three voices need to be uh, pushed at once, or when the when one person can kind of dial back. If you watch improvisers improvise, uh, like if you watch free improvisers uh, with acoustic instruments, often some one person will just stop and hang out by the side of the stage for a while, and then come in. And um, I, I've seen a lot of that kind of music in my life, uh, so I'm always thinking about those guys how unequivalent with electronic instruments works and how it's different. What do you find is successful practice for that? It's just, it's a, it's an exercise in listening to what's happening to not be afraid to stop making sound. Cause you, you know, like one of the big fears with playing by yourself is that the sound will just stop or something or the sound will stop in a way that's not pleasing. Like sometimes pauses are okay, but when there's three people making sound, it's much easier to stop and the music won't suffer, you know? And then you have to think about how you can complement what's happening. And what's interesting is that all, all three of us are thinking these same things at once, and so you never know if everyone's going to pull back at once or when, you know, is it. But that's what's beautiful about improvising is that those accents produce effects. Do you begin just blank slate with the modular? Or do you have a couple of things wired that just feel intuitive that you can navigate? I usually, and this goes for almost all my performances, I usually prepare a patch. But I find with the trio that the patch I prepare is usually not enough to sustain variation throughout the whole thing. We'll often record ourselves playing for like two hours straight or something. Um, So by the end of it, it'll just be something different stuff will have changed or I'll be in some place I wasn't expecting I'd get to. And again, it's uh, because I don't have to fill all the space all the time by myself. Uh, I'll, the, the kind of patch I will prepare will be different. Uh, it'll be less geared towards having multiple voices. So maybe just, uh, it's just like an interesting place to start. I haven't had a lot of success in my life, like starting from a totally blank slate when I, when it's a, a pressure situation, you know? <laughs> Um, I, I was in a residency in, at Banff uh, early last year, and one of the other artists there was Keith Fulton Whitman, and and we were um, there was like several nights of performances, and there was a few nights of performances that were not for the public, and Keith was like, Carl, just don't patch anything, just get on stage, no wires, just have a heap of wires next to your thing, and just go. And I was like, okay, like, this is a very low low pressure situation, so I'll, I'll try this. And uh, 
it started out okay, but then I did something wrong at some point, and there was just like ten minutes of silence <laughs> as I as I was like figuring out what I patched wrong, and then and I but I, I like I didn't stop the show. I just kept going, and eventually sound came back, and <laughs> so uh, probably will never do that again. Or if I do, I have to really practice doing that. Right. One of the things with playing, I never know what the lighting is going to be like. And I don't always bring the light with me. I probably should. But a lot of times when you're practicing in the studio, you can see everything really clearly. And then then when, yeah, when I get on stage, I'm always like, oh, right, I have to squint at this box. So it's really valuable to, yeah, to not change like the modules too often too, because then I have a little bit of muscle memory. When you're preparing a patch for a live show, what's automatically going to be a given? And then what is left as an unknown? Well, uh, one of the givens is always going to be tuning. It doesn't have to, it doesn't mean it has to be tuned like conventionally. It just has to be tuned to, so that all of what, like, so that I can't bring in a thing that'll be like wildly out of tune. Uh, so I have to, yeah, I developed the whole tuning structure of the piece like in advance. Um, and then I usually develop the section that like decides what the notes will be. So yeah, there's like a melody generator structure and a, a tuning structure, and those are generally fixed. I'm not going to like wildly detune something on stage unless I know it's going to be like a, a real like noise situation. Hmm. And then a lot of the a lot of the timing is left up to improvisation. So a lot of times I'll, I'll have control over being able to go from a straight even clock to a very varied one. Um, often now it'll be separated into two or three or four voices uh, that can come in and out. That's maybe not super obvious when you listen to it, but th- that happens. Um, and then uh, I usually give myself a lot of control over the timbre and control a certain amount of control over amplitudes of everything and filters. I like to put filters after control of the amplitude so that you have this kind of like almost doubling of the voice sometimes if because you, you can set those things to be wildly different because you can kind of use the filter to control the amplitude or you can have the volume of something be fixed or unfixed or so like yeah all the enveloping all the filtering all the timbre control like fm indexes all that stuff any kind of effects that stuff is all just kind of left up to live changes whereas the tuning and the, the kind of mean pattern generators or what have you are kind of fixed mm. um I, I mostly play without a sequencer a lot of times it's a it's it's like some kind of cv thing into a quantizer and so sometimes i'll give myself control over like the amount of cv that's feeding the the melody generator so you know you can control like kind of like the range of melody or you have an offset of that cv so you can control the what octave you're in or whatever but sometimes you make a patch not knowing that one aspect will be really clutch in performance or something like sometimes there'll be an aspect of the circuit that just distorts really nicely and i never plan that kind of thing but you realize oh i can just crank it for effect or at some point or something so then that discovery then is is rooted in a more emotional exploration or a more technical exploration i guess it's a combo of both People always tell me it's all really technical. And I mean, that's how I learn how to do it. It's because it's a technical thing, but ultimately comes down to uh, how, how much I'm enjoying what I'm hearing, you know, 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much I'm feeling it. I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm a little reticent to talk about emotions because I don't always want it to be obvious, uh, but obvi- but but clearly I do. Like it, it sparks something in me, and that's that's what's valuable, not the technical stuff. The technical stuff is just a means to get to some place where you feel something. Yeah. Um, but one, one, like one of the things I love about synths in general, and especially synths where the architecture is really open, is you can get to these zones that kind of you're not quite sure what they make you feel. Uh, and I, I love that. I relish that kind of like ambiguity where it's, yeah, the emotional content is present, but not clear. And it's the same way you can get into weird uncanny spaces where, um, you're not quite sure what the sound you're hearing is. It kind of sounds like an acoustic instrument, but it doesn't. It's, it's very uncanny. I, I like those uncanny places. Having those shows recorded, how much do they influence then the studio performance of a piece? You know, I don't try. I don't. I don't try and um, connect them purposefully. Uh, I, I listen back to the live performances with future live performances in mind. Uh, like I, I, I learn a lot about the overall pacing of a of a set or something from listening back to a recording. Um, but I never, I never say to myself, oh, that spot in that show was amazing. I better try and recreate that because I'll never be able to do it, you know? So I, I prefer to just start fresh in a sense with the same starting point as the show started from, the patch. Uh, and then just hopefully something new comes out of that when I'm recording it in the studio. But the, so the next tape I have coming out, which uh, is was recorded uh, in Boston earlier this year, is um, it's... A little bit different than it normally happens, but I ended up recording myself rehearsing, uh, and then I recorded the set, and then I ended up splicing those two things together, and it turned it turned out to be uh, enough of uh, for two pieces, like two sides of a tape. So that's it, like a different, interesting way of approaching the same thing, which is looking at the object, the patch, from many angles. Sometimes I record shows as like with a mic in the room, and sometimes I record them at line level. So that one was recorded off the board, and so it sounds pretty indistinguishable from the rehearsals. Uh, so you can't really tell where the bits I used were from the show and where the bits were the rehearsals. And I like that. Is there a bit of your process where you you do wonder about the experience of listening on your own time? you know, somebody is on a bus and they're going to throw this on because that is different for an audience member than coming to a show and, and participating in being uh, an element of something. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I just use myself as a listener again as the test case because um, I do listen to like quite a lot of music that is not live or improvised and I listen to quite a lot of music on the bus or like in the grocery store or whatever. So... Um, usually I throw my own pieces onto uh, my phone or whatever and uh, I take a bus ride. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it's like any composer. It's uh, it's my own sense of timing and pacing and just wanting to listen to something. I do think uh, like instinctually I, I know the difference or, uh, or something like that. Um, the demands for pacing are quite different, I think, for home listening and for a live performance. Like this exercise I just did of of editing together bits of a show and bits of a studio recording, 
I did find that like the the finished piece is kind of more like dynamically stable, whereas in, in the show sometimes the like mood of the audience will really affect like how loud you're pushing something or how often you go to a really quiet place or a really uh, busy place or something like that. The show that I use the recordings for was like really kind of a weird vibe. Um, and they booked me with like a bunch of dance acts. The the first act played this like techno set, and then and then like I was in the middle. So they, they there was all this dance music, and then there was me, and then there was like some more dance music. And, <laughs> and I mean, I think people enjoyed it, but the mood of the atmosphere was just like really weird. Uh, so I, I, a bunch of that set is just like play push things like really loud and fast. And a lot of that stuff got cut from the studio recordings. And I like, I noticed the rehearsals. The rehearsals were much more mellow. But but I've played other shows like where the audience is like ready to like fall asleep, and so you can play something more more relaxed or you know. So so yeah, sometimes just the mood of the room will really affect things. Whereas uh, you're more free to to control the pacing of something when it's for home listening. I think. thinking more about uh like taking an approach that's very compositional like thought out and compositional and i think that's because uh playing with other with other groups improvising has become like very satisfying to the extent that improvising solo feels less uh crucial and so the the next logical place to go is to start thinking more deliberately about uh, compositional decisions but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to approach multi-tracking or like I'm going to start doing tons of it because I don't think that necessarily suits the music. So I think it's just about being more deliberate about patching at home or more deliberate about what a release consists of or even doing something like creating a score. I'm starting to think about that kind of thing just as a way to experiment with new things on my own. But, but yeah, multi-tracking, I don't know. I just... it. If I do too much of it, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and uh, I also, I don't think there needs to be that much sound. <laughs> I think it just is it's also like an aesthetic. I'm, I'm just super interested in the threshold between there being sound, but it not being quite enough to be interesting. And then there being a very small amount of sound, but it's like engaging, right? Like I, I'm fascinated with where that threshold is. Like, what is this? What is the smallest amount of sound that could be engaging? Yeah, which, which I guess means one day I'll make a super minimal, like, uh, like just crackling record or something. Uh, although, to be honest, I'm not like I don't really. I want people to listen. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of like background ambient music. But. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think sometimes I make decisions where like the pacing of a piece, some of the stuff I do is it's not ambient music, you know. But sometimes it is, and I'm getting more interested in drum music. But I, but I do want people to like be engaged. I don't necessarily uh, want to make total background music. But nevertheless, that line is super fascinating.
tool selection process it feels incredibly intentional. You have almost famously opted to learn a very small system. Yeah. At this year, earlier this year, I expanded it a little bit, um, but it's not going to get any bigger than this because it's it would be too much. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's several practical reasons for that, and the the primary one is is if there's too much stuff, it's overwhelming to improvise with. Yeah. You just don't know it all well enough. And then the the second one is uh, just like having to carry all the stuff around. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and for years I just used a 3U case. I, I, I started with a 3U, it was like 90 HP, and yeah. at some point it got all banged up, and I, I was actually angry that you could that they stopped making them that small. They At some point they, they decided the standard was 104. So I, I had that, I had a, a, yeah, 104 case. And then, so I just, earlier this year, I just upgraded to uh, uh, two rows. So it's like a suitcase. Um, I, I found that I was using like too many guitar pedals with the 3U case and so oh. that became too annoying carrying around those things and plugging them all in and so now I can pretty much do like a whole set just the one suitcase and I have like one there's like one pedal adapter so every so often there's like a delay or a reverb or something that's really nice outside of the case but uh, it's pretty much all contained in one suitcase now which I think is ideal um, Yeah, and I just kind of figured out the bottom configuration went through a couple changes but i think it's set now and uh so yeah uh, lately i've been learning how to play that like full system now yeah because it takes a while to get used to that stuff part of it too is i i I know myself and i know i i have a collector's impulse so i really don't want to be collecting all this stuff because i would never survive (laughs) In thinking about a system as elements where the function changes depending on how they're linked, what drives the decision to bring in something else or to look for uh, another element? Well, some of it is just like the kind of things I'm interested in compositionally, whether they're available in the synth world or not. I like having all the oscillators be the same. Uh, I think it just sounds more like a consistent instrument. If you have different oscillators, it's almost like stringing your your guitar with different kinds of strings like metal mm. and nylon or something uh, not that that's necessarily bad it's just i like the three oscillators being the same and there's other bits of the system that can produce tones that sound different so yeah it's just down to what compositionally what i'm interested in or um i mean i love the the mangroves well all the mannequin stuff i like it because it reminds me of the more than anything in your record reminds me of the old search systems and I got to use like a stereo system from 1974, not that long ago in Calgary. This is huge. This is kind of like synthesizer museum, and they have a uh, yeah this crazy collection of gear. And one of the things is a yeah stereo modular from 1974. And when I used that, it kind of cemented uh, a how much I like that approach to synthesis, which is highly patch programmable. Like even though uh, the the modules might have a specific intent or something. They can all be patched to do like a different thing. And I think the, the mannequins really carried forward that kind of like Serge mentality, whether or not they advertise it or not. In the same way that the Make Noise stuff carries forward the, the Buchla designs. Uh, but they're, they're more kind of like overt about it, I think. But um, yeah, that's what I love about the Mancros. Uh, 
there's just so many like tricks with them. The design of them is great. And uh, at some point, it just uh, it's like any artistic decision. You just commit to it because you're like, well, this is the instrument. I, I can't change the stuff too often. And I, so I found the bits that I liked. And uh, like, it's kind of a weird thing now because there's, you know, like really big companies make these modules now because the market just took off. But when I started, like, like uh, Make Noise was a pretty small company. And it's pretty easy to like talk to the people who made the, the, the things. And it's, again, it's... I think it's. I think they have a similar. They're maybe not quite as explicit about their ethics as Brian and Kelly are, but uh, um, it really is a small company. Uh, so I, I felt really good about getting into Eurorack because it wasn't like these giant. Like you buy enough guitar pedals, and it's uh, you know you end up getting things made by giant companies manufactured in Taiwan or whatever. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it feels nice to be able to know the craftsman who made your instrument i mean I, what i really appreciate about some of the synth designs like uh make noise or the mannequin stuff too i really appreciate that this is kind of linked to the historical past uh a lot of the designs come out of or, or at least inspired by older synthesizers while at the same time trying to add their own kind of ideas about how these things can be musical uh, and i really appreciate that because i i think I mean, I'm personally a huge nerd about the history of electronic music. So, um, and and so many of those old synthesizers are just like unobtainable for people. And so, I really appreciate the way in which the kind of history of those instruments is allowed to continue. Because I think for a while it was almost like a version of what music could have been was closed off to everyone. Mm. Um, I think all these small manufacturers who are like quite savvy about the history of the instruments uh but also really like brilliant designers in their own right i think that yeah they're really opening up things for a certain direction of, of electronic music uh I, yeah i'm just incredibly thankful for it it's amazing it's amazing how cheap it is it's amazing how small it is it's it's, it's brilliant For more of Carl's solo and trio work, visit carlfosick.bandcamp.com. I hope you join the conversation at lines. L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L dot C-O. Thanks so much for listening.